Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 26. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For what? For we already have made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I'm trying to say thanks for letting me come along and I bring you greetings from uh, the Christian family up in Catherine and my family who would have loved to be able to be here and meet you as well. Mike's already prayed that God would uh, give us understanding and work with us through his word. And so I want to start with that question uh, that he reminded us of before. How do I know that God cares about me? And I want to I use a picture that a friend of mine uh, shared, and I've got her permission to do it. I think it's there. Have you got the the big picture of the... That's it. So on Valentine's Day, a friend of mine gave this to her husband. Um, to the man I love, every day holds more smiles, more sweet memories, more to love about you. And can you go to the next picture? You'll see what was written there. Except today, you are grouchy. Uh, more reasons to love you, more memories. Except today, you are grouchy. Uh, I spoke with her about that and asked if I could use that, that image um, as... Uh, an example in a sermon, she said, oh yeah, okay, I'm happy to be an illustration of graceless love. And and I said, look, I actually think that you're just more honest than the rest of it. So I got her permission to use use that image, but I think she is just like us, um, and that our love for each other 
waxes and wanes, depending on how lovely we find the people that we love. Um, And I suspect we presume most of the time that God is like us in that way too. And his love for us waxes and wanes depending on when we're grouchy or lovable, delightful or a little bit not so good on those days that we are most aware of. And because of that, it's really a question that does haunt us. Why would God care about me? How can I be sure that he loves me? And some people struggle with a question of, I'm I'm really not anybody special. And God's got a lot of important things to deal with. With all those bad things happening around the place, he's not really, he's too busy for me. So uh, how can I be sure that he cares about me? Or, as we carry the guilt and shame around for the things that we have done or wish and know we should have done, for all that we've done and failed to do, we wonder, why would he stick with me? Why would God stay with someone like me? But I want to make the question tougher than that. And as you heard that that reading from Romans 3, you would have seen the kind of diagnosis that Paul says is true of each one of us apart from Christ. It's not really very pleasant, is it, reading as we hear it? No one righteous, not even one. If you've got your Bibles, you can see there from verse 11, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And then that horrible indictment in the middle of verse 12, they have together become useless. Their throats are open graves. Verse 14, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Ruin and misery mark their ways, verse 16. And look at verse 17, the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So you and I are more than just a bit grouchy. Um, we have a, a far serious, more serious problem than that. Now those, those verses that Paul throws out there, that's part of a much larger argument in the book of Romans. And he pulls most of those verses from the book of Psalms, speaking about the nation of Israel. And his conclusion at the end is, if Israel with all their blessings and all the things that God specially gave to them get that diagnosis at the end, then the whole world is stuffed and under God's judgment. That's his conclusion in in verse 19 and 20. We know the law says those things to those who are under law so that every mouth, since yours and mine, may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. You and I are more than a bit grouchy. And so if that's God's verdict on people without Jesus then we really should be asking not the question, how do I know God cares about me, but why would God care about me at all? Our problem's deeper than than sentimental, divine, warm fuzzies, you know, knowing that God has a special place for me in his heart. We, we have a really serious issue. How can I know that that God loves people like me in that description? And so I thought rather than answering that bigger question, I want to answer that, that deeper question. Why on earth, how on earth can we know that God would love someone like me? When I was in my first year at Moore College, um, pretty soon after getting to know everybody in my year group and, and having a couple of months of, of that normal beginnings, uh, my dad had a stroke in his brainstem. Six days later, he died. Um, and when we had the funeral for him, which was down on the south coast, nowhere near 
Sydney, all of these people from college showed up. I'd only met them a couple of months ago. There's a couple of lecturers, some students from my year with a senior student as well. You show love by showing up, don't you? You express commitment and care for someone by, by turning up. When you have a, a church a working day, you know the people who are committed to that idea because they turn up. You know, before the sun rises, when it's cold and unpleasant, to do whatever work needs to happen. When people need it, we show our love by showing up. I want to run you back to an episode that happened in Abraham's life, so way, way before these writings uh, to, that Paul wrote to the church. But they're, they're a precursor to what happens with Jesus. Now, Abraham in, in Genesis 15, and I'm just going to flick to it. You don't need to, but you're welcome to. It's always good to make sure that whatever's coming from the front comes from the word. So by all means, test me against it. But Genesis 15 God repeats some promises to Abraham that he's already given him. I'll make your name great. I'll bless you. Through blessing you, I'll bless the world. I'll give you a family that are huge. And by Genesis 15, Abraham's looking around at his a situation in life and he says to God, how am I going to know this is true because I don't even have an heir. I have no children, let alone this great nation you promised me. And God says to him, well, in, in verse in verse 9, bring me some animals. And it's, it's quite weird, Genesis 15, 9. So the Lord said, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And we read on these gruesome details, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. Presumably they were too small to do that. And then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. We'll skip a little bit, but head to verse 17 that says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, I'll give you that land. So I want you to picture it. There's these animals that have been cut in half, And we read that and just go, well, that's a bit gross. Why would he do that? But back then, to make a binding agreement between two parties, they would kill these animals, split them in half, and say, if if I break, they would walk through the middle of those carcasses and say, if I break my side of the agreement, may it be done to me what's happened to these animals. May the penalty that's happened to these animals fall on me. And both parties would walk through in this gruesome scene, these split dead carcasses, and say, may the penalties fall on me if I don't keep my side of the agreement. And in the middle of that arrangement, did you notice what happens to Abram? You might remember if I heard it. He falls into a deep sleep. Abram does nothing. And a smoking fire pot passes through the centre of these animals as God says, I will take on the penalties for the breaking of this arrangement. May it fall on me when this arrangement is broken. May it be to me, the Lord God, as to these animals when this arrangement is broken. God shows up. 
he had no compulsion to offer Abram any promises at all in the first place, way back in Genesis 12, let alone in Genesis 15, not only to make those promises again, but say, when these things are broken, I will pay for it, I will deal with it, I will own this, you just stay asleep, Abram, in your deep, thick sleep that you cannot wake up from, I will deal with it. God shows up, willing to take responsibility and give Abraham all the reward. There are some people who struggle thinking that in the Old Testament is a capricious God who does not care for people. And all I can think is they're reading from a different Bible than mine because look at the generosity of God here. Promises to Abraham that are rich and incredible and then saying, I'll take the penalty. Let it be to me, not you. Look at the generosity of God. So then again, back to Romans 3. And the reason I took you to Genesis 15 is because one of Paul's threaded arguments through the letter to the Roman church relies on that episode that happened there where Abraham trusted God and God counted him as right with God when God gave him these promises. Just as with Abram's episode in life and we're able to see the care of God for him by the fact that God showed up, walked through the carcasses. In Romans 3, I want you to read verse 24 and 25, not out loud, but along with me. Paul has said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Just as with Abram, in the matter of our most pressing need, our guilt, our shame, our sin and our crime against God, God shows up in Jesus. God with undeserved kindness makes you and I right with him freely. He says, let it be to me the breaking of this agreement between humans and God who should have obeyed their creator, lived his way, trusted him, followed him, loved him with all their heart. And for Jesus on the cross, let it be to me all the penalties of breaking my laws. You show your love by showing up? Well, God did that at the cross of Jesus, presented shedding his blood for us. The thing I find astounding by all of this is that as we read on in verse 25, and I stopped halfway through, is that nobody bent God's arm in the first place to overlook sin. Have a look with me in verse 25, the second half. God did this, he did this, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God didn't need to do that. God could have struck each sinner with judgment at their first sin. Done. But he's a God of patience who waits, who watches. He stores things up, he keeps an account. But he didn't need to overlook sin to the point that God looks unjust. He looks like he's not acting. He looks like he's doing nothing. He's letting people get away with things. And Paul says in verse 25... God shows up, 
to pay for things. God had been overlooking the sins of the past. This is an act of love. Where finally the wrath of God is faced by the Son of God to move it off us so we can become the children of God. How do you know God cares about you? Look at the cross of Jesus. Look at the cross of Jesus. And someone who cares for you might shout you lunch, but that's hospitality. It's good. Someone who really kind of, you know, is invested in you might pay your fines. But divine love dies your death. Divine love dies your death. That's the love of God for you. There's a possibility that as we read this, we presume that this is true for others but not for ourselves. Uh, that God does forgive, but he forgives those other people and not, and not me. And so I want you to read verse 21 and 22 again with me, and then verse 26. I am jumping around, but it's not because I don't care about the flow. Verse 21, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Now that verse was a stumbling block for Luther, who said, When I read that, I hated God, and I hated his righteousness, because he was so holy and had such a standard that all he did was look down on me in haughtiness and condemnation. I hated that God and his righteousness, said Luther. But I wish he'd read on sooner in his life because he would have discovered verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And that was his great discovery 500 years ago. This righteousness is given through trusting Jesus Christ. Well, who can do that? You can. Any one of you can. Any one of you can. You would have seen on that outline, the anyone means you. Anyone who trusts means you. In verse 26, God did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have trust in Jesus. Once the cross of Jesus occurs, once Jesus died, God no longer looks like he's been overlooking sin at any point because he's sorted it out in the cross. How do I know God cares about me? God knows my crimes. And he knows yours. But it's not in spite of my sin that Jesus came. It isn't even precise enough to say say that he showed up because of my sin. But because of his love, he showed up to deal with my sin. And set me free. Remember, nobody bent God's arm to overlook sin in the first place. So you were more than a bit grouchy. 
But God showed up in Jesus at the point of our deepest ugliness, our deepest guilt, our deepest sin, and dealt with our need to have that penalty removed. This is how we know God cares about us. Romans 5, which I think I might steal Mike's thunder, but Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners when he died for us. He already knew everything that was wrong about us and in love he died for us. So of course he cares for us when we're grouchy. Of course he cares for us when we have a bad day. He cares for us when we feel self-righteous and pretty good as well. He loves us with divine love that will not give up because in the cross of Jesus is his guarantee that he has paid all the penalties in full and you are now family, not foes. God showed his love by showing up and that's for any one of you to receive it and become family too. Can I pray for you? Um, That word trust, that's just God calling us to have confidence in what he's done for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this surprising news that you are the God who rescues people who have come a long way from you, those who are criminals before you. And in your love, you sent Jesus to pay those penalties, to do the equivalent of walking between the animals and facing all our guilt and shame. We thank you that you've put it away. And I pray for each of these people in this room, for those who already know this, that you would cause our hearts to sing. We are loved by you. For all those who doubt it, that by your spirit you would cause them to believe the truth, that it was out of your great love that you loved us, you've set us free. So that each one of us in this room can find peace and hope and freedom rather than feeling insignificant in your eyes, but to know that we are your loved family members. Father God, move us by your love to also want to share this with others that they can be the anyone who believes and find forgiveness too. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.